afternoon, everybody. Happy Thursday to you. Delighted to have you here for our latest edition of Bold Leaders in Learning. And I'm excited to have uh, one of my new friends. Uh, I think we built our friendship on LinkedIn initially here, Nick, but uh, Nick Bayer, the founder and CEO of Saxby's Coffee. Uh, it's an incredible story. You might be thinking, okay, it's a coffee shop uh, and a business that's opened up coffee shops in a number of college campuses. But uh, as you'll soon learn, uh, there's a really cool education mission to what they're doing. Uh, Nick, first of all, thank you for carving out time to be with me today. And uh, would love to just have you start by telling people a little bit more about your background, how you got to the place of starting Saxby's, and then tell us about what Saxby's is. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I think you're 100% right. We built this relationship on LinkedIn, so which just means that we are trailblazers because I think that that's how you're supposed to build relationships uh, these days is on things like LinkedIn. But, um, you know, my story, like I think most of ours in, in sort of a professional capacity, you know, goes back to like sort of the, the personal reasons why you choose to do what you do. Um, you know, my, my parents were really dead set individually on being the first people in their families to, to be able to go away to college when they did. Um, they met. And unfortunately started a family way earlier than they were expecting to and they dropped out of school. Um, and so as teenagers starting a family with no education, you know, they pretty much took whatever jobs they could get. Um, my dad wanted to be a coach and teacher. My mom wanted to be an entrepreneur and all of those dreams sort of got shelved really for their entirety of their careers. And so they really impressed upon me and then my little brother, get an education and do what you love to do. The second part made no sense to me until I was getting ready to graduate college, but the first part did, you know, and I, I worked hard in school. Um, I had a, a middle school teacher who encouraged my parents to send me um, to a different place for school, a place that would maybe challenge me a little bit more. And my parents listened to her and did. And I went to a really challenging college prep high school. I was pretty far behind in almost every grade when I got there. But, um, you know, although I didn't deal with all those things in a mature manner, I did learn to work hard. You know, I did learn to not feel sorry for myself. And that became the impetus for me to be able to get to Cornell. Um, and so I ultimately was the first person in my family to, to go to and graduate from college. Um, and, and I used my opportunity there. I was a bit of a fish out of water, but I took a bunch of different internships in finance and logistics and real estate all across the country, trying to find that thing that I was going to do. And um, I liked all those things, but there wasn't that thing that made my heart race. And I, and I really wanted to do something that made my heart race. And so I was freaking out when I was 22, like most 22 year olds do. And I'm like, I don't know what I wanna do. Started to call some mentors. And really the most important mentor to me was that middle school teacher, Mrs. Eichen. And I called her and she was excited to hear from me. She was calm and confident and passionate and saying, Nick, I became a teacher for this reason, like watching you be successful and have the world in front of you is why I became a teacher. And mind you, I didn't feel successful at all, but it made me feel good. And I remember hanging up the phone and I said to myself, I'm like, I want that same feeling professionally. Like that's what I want to do. But having gone to Cornell and having these internships, I finally got exposed to business. And as a, as a former athlete like yourself, I love competition. I'm at my best when I have to be on my toes. I have to innovate. I fall down. I have to pick myself back up. You work with a team. And I really wanted that. And when I was coming out of school, this notion of being a social entrepreneur, that you could work hard and be a successful business and pick people up and make the world a better place, they were supposed to be like mutually exclusive. You had to do one or yep. the other. Yep. And, I, and I felt like I didn't have to ultimately do one or the other. And so I, I sort of put in the back of my head, I'm like, one day I'm going to create my own business that's going to be predicated on being able to do that. And, 
you know, I, I went into consulting out of school and every day that, that went on, I knew more and more and more that I needed to start something. And I wanted a business that was predicated on human, human interaction. Like I'm a people person. I don't have a lot of skills, but I like people. And, and I like to think that I have you know, some people skills. And I felt like I could build a business that could make a difference in people's lives. And that's how I picked coffee. I was not a, I didn't grow up going to Colombian coffee farms. I liked <laughs> the coffee business because it's low barrier to entry. You know, you can employ anyone, you can serve anyone. And the low barrier to entry means it's highly competitive, but that plays to my competitive side as well. And so I, you know, pre-COVID and where we'll get post-COVID is, you know, we serve 15,000 guests a day. We serve people that are multimillionaires and homeless who someone gave $2 to to come into the same space, be treated with equal dignity and respect and, and share a place together. And I'm proud of that. And we, at the same time, employ 900 people, people with PhDs and MBAs and people that we hired out of youth homeless shelters. And they all start at the same level with the same opportunity to grow. And I don't know if you could do that if you're a technology company, if you're a bank, but if you're a coffee company, the barrier to entry is, is so low. The barrier to entry is, do you believe in our mission? Do you believe that we can make life better through the operation of a business? And if so, we can teach you the skills to be able to, to have a job and have a career that you actually like to have. So that vision that I had coming out of college, it was influenced by my teacher and other people encouraging me to really pursue my heart, not just my head. Um, it's starting to really come together. But I think the glue to that is really our, our experiential learning platform, which I know we'll, we'll talk about a lot today. Yeah, I know we'll, we'll get to that because I know there's a lot of folks who are going to be really interested in, um, you know, what the design of it is, how it's been functioning. Uh, and I think you and I obviously, uh, you know, had a, had a instant mutual respect for one another because, you know, I started essentially, I mean, a different kind of business, but the same, you know, the same kind of thing, right? Uh, you know, I was a social entrepreneur uh, before the term was even kind of coined uh, when I started outside the classroom in 2000. And that was months after I graduated uh, from, from Duke as an undergrad. And and I always believe, like like I know you do, that there, you know, that that doing good and doing well were not mutually exclusive. And in fact, in my business, there wasn't a double bottom line. Like a lot of people in business schools talk about a double bottom line. You know, that would be a company that has a, a profit mission, uh, and on the other side has like a foundation where they, you know, donate money for good causes, right? Like that. That's more of a double bottom line for the work that I was doing it outside the classroom, right? If we didn't deliver results on reducing things like binge drinking on campus or sexual assaults on campus people didn't pay us for our services right so they you know that that was that was one bottom line it was deliver on a social good and a social value or we didn't have a business model and so i'm i'm excited that you built one of those organizations and i'm excited that that's what gets you excited let's talk about now what you guys have created it's a really unique model so for the most part, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think all of your locations are on college campuses or right near college campuses. You've built partnerships where a lot of your employees are students, and a lot of those students can actually get academic credit for the work that they're doing at Saxby's. And so, tell me, tell me about this experiential platform you guys have created, and uh, and I'm sure we'll get some great questions too from our audience today. Yeah, absolutely. So. Back in about 2013, I get a call from Cornell. Cornell had just received a, a pretty large gift to start to teach entrepreneurship uh, at the university. And, the, and the, uh, the donor really wanted, he was a self-made entrepreneur, he really wanted at the core of the learning experience for students to have entrepreneurs in residence. He wanted real entrepreneurs in there 
not talking about how smart they are, but talking about all the mistakes that they made and the things that they would do, do differently if they could do it all over again. And so I think Cornell had reached out to me because I was somewhat young and I'm very open to speaking about my experiences and, and I'm really good at making mistakes and apparently really good at talking about those. And so I think for that reason, they, they brought me in and wow, sometimes it's just awesome to be lucky, you know? And um, I just got there at the really right time where when you and I were coming out of school, almost no one taught entrepreneurship, let alone social entrepreneurship. But the pendulum, I was there sitting at the table watching the pendulum swing to the other end where everyone was teaching entrepreneurship. Duke, Cornell, Community College of Philadelphia, where I'm on the board of high schools. I've even spoken to literally middle schools about entrepreneurship. So the pendulum swung all the way. But the then dean of the Cornell Hotel School where this program resided so it was Michael Johnson. Michael's now the president of John Carroll in Cleveland. Sort of talked to me about, Nick, this is exciting. We're teaching people how to write business plans, how to raise capital, how to do SWOT analysis, but we have to figure out how to do this through experiential learning. And I kept hearing that. And I would go guest lecture at Temple and at Drexel back in Philly where I'm based. And I kept hearing experiential learning, experiential learning. We had built a business at Saxby's because I believe in entrepreneurship. So all of our cafes at that point, we had had some that were around college campuses, but none were certainly in partnership. They were just real estate around them. And they just happened to be our most successful ones. But every single cafe was being run by a CEO, a cafe executive officer. The notion of that being people don't want to be robots. They don't want to just be told, here's this, just move it from here to there. We wanted people who believed in our mission were well-trained and supported, but were empowered to make decisions. So much other, like today, when I go into a cafe, I work for that CEO. That's their business domain. And so that was a great way for us to teach entrepreneurship. So when I kept hearing all these great leaders in higher ed talk about experiential learning, I'm like, you know what? We pride ourselves on running really bustling businesses with young, diverse people with tremendous amounts of responsibility. And a lot of our business up to that point had been franchised as well. So we believed in the notion of people being entrepreneurial. And so yep. this idea sort of came together where it was like college kids today love going to co co you know, cafes like on, on or around campus, like the bars and social drinking, those kinds of things have changed a lot since the days we were in school. And so I was able to meet President Fry at Drexel and I pitched him this idea. I said, hey, John, what if, and they had just created the close school of entrepreneurship at Drexel. So they were all in on, on entrepreneurship. And he said, I said, hey, John, what if we open up a cafe that's going to be designed by architecture and engineering students at Drexel and then exclusively run by your students. Before I could even finish, he goes, Nick, I'm in. If you guys can build a system to be able to support this, yeah. we're totally into it. And so on April 13th of 2015, we converted two two bedroom apartments in the middle of Drexel's campus into this really cool cafe that was like graffiti murals by art students, reclaimed furniture by engineering students. And it's run by 40 undergraduate students. And John and I did celebratory espresso shots that morning. And we had to literally go out to the patio because it filled up immediately. And he pointed <laughs> behind him. I remember it like it was yesterday. He pointed behind him. He goes, Nick, this is the future of education. He's like, the skills these young people are going to have to develop and hone are critical to their success. This is what employers are demanding of us. This is what their parents, what they're demanding of us but it's really hard, if not impossible, for us to teach in the classroom. Things like power skills, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, cultural agility, having to make hundreds of decisions in a day, manage your peers, people who look differently than you, think differently than you, come from different places, and have full autonomy of the business. These students are CEOs, so the student CEOs actually come into my headquarters in Philadelphia every single month and present their profit and loss statement in front of my executive team 
in front of their peers. So they're doing things, not only that like the, the, the job market needs, the next generation of entrepreneurs need, but that they love to do, that they love to learn. And so John really encouraged me. He's like, Nick, don't, don't just have this as your one trophy. He's like, you guys need to figure out now how to scale this. And that's what we've been working really hard doing. Yeah, that's exciting. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited too, because I've got John Fry on this show in September. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make sure we bring up the, the Saxby's launch with him there as well. But he's, uh, he's an incredible leader. And I'm, uh, I could see how he took a, a lot of excitement around what you were doing and, and, uh, and helped you get that going at Drexel. One of the questions that just came in from Whitney Feininger is, uh, is how this works uh, from the academic point of view, right? Like, uh, how is this graded or measured or tracked from the academic side of things? Because as I understand it, several of these partnerships, students are getting academic credit for the work that they're doing running the Saxby's location. Yeah, so we actually today, we now have 12 of these partnerships with phenomenal university partners. So Drexel, and then we did a second at Drexel, Temple, LaSalle, Westchester, St. Joe's, Penn State, um, Bowie State University in Maryland, which was our first out of Pennsylvania and our first historically black college. We opened there in November. Um, so it's been amazing to be able to watch this grow. And, and one of the most critical parts of this is, as you and I were talking before we went on air, Brandon, is the student CEO runs this business unit for six months and actually takes no classes during those six months, but gets a full semester of credit. So Speaking of credit, I give our university leaders so much credit for being so innovative to recognize the skill sets that are being taught and then putting academic credit behind it. So, so Whitney's question, um, high level, it's done a little bit differently everywhere. So some of the schools will create like a Drexel is a co-op school. So we do it straight to the co-op program, which is pretty easy for them. Right. Yep. Penn State and Bowie State, those are, those are not typical co-op schools. So in some instances, they are creating a co-op and an internship, and they're putting six and six credits behind it. And then there's other universities where they're literally mapping the skill sets that are honed by these student CEOs to individual courses and giving them three credits for leadership management, four credits for social entrepreneurship or whatever it happens to be. And then they're meeting with, on, on whatever regular basis the, um, our academic partners require, they are, um, they're actually meeting with them on a weekly basis, they're writing papers on it. There's a lot of reflection and journaling on it. But the beauty of this is that we make it a little bit different and customized for every university. You know, Bowie State, their priorities and the way they operate is a little bit different than LaSalle. And so we work with the provost, the dean, the, the, the leaders within faculty to be able to figure out how we can use this program synergistically to advance what their priorities are. And, um, and I think that that's been beneficial for us is if we came into higher ed and said, here's the program, take it or leave it, you know, it's off the shelf and just take it or leave it. Like we wouldn't have gotten a lot of traction. Instead, we love and respect how students are being taught in the classroom in higher ed. And we feel like we're adding something synergistic, authentic and flexible to be able to sort of provide a holistic, well-rounded educational experience for students. And then I think that's the reason why we've been able to get such wide support from our academic partners. Yeah, and, uh, Barbara Thompson, who's with us as well, has a kind of following question. She asks, you know, how does the funding work? Or maybe I'll add even more, you know, how does the relationship work between the university and Saxby? So maybe just describe that for some of the universities that might be listening in and thinking, hey, we should, we should check this out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, look, I didn't know a whole lot about how higher ed works before we did this. Um, and, I, and I said, you know, we all, we all have things where you work hard and some things work out and you're fortunate. And then you have signs where you just got lucky. I got lucky that I was introduced to President Fry first. Um, 
because he was such the perfect person. He's not, not only become a friend and a mentor, but he's such a, a well-regarded leader in the world of education because he truly puts student experiences above all else. And so he's been a really great help for me in this entire process. And so I didn't know anything about dining services. I didn't know anything about, you know, the, the manner with which credits were granted. And so we had to sort of take a crash course on those kinds of things. But the long story short, um, th there's two critical parts to this operation. It's, it's where the, the, the cafe is located, because if it's located on the fourth floor of an academic building, no one goes into the students aren't going to learn anything. You might as well use fake money and just go through the motions, but that's not experiential yeah. learning. It's, it doesn't yeah. do it justice. So it's great real estate. And then obviously the student CEO having full autonomy and full responsibility for the business. But the way, when you take a step back, these are exclusively student operating cafes. So I'll, I'll use the example of Penn State. So we're in Penn State's Smeal College of Business. Very large, very reputable uh, brand. Dean Whiteman's been a great, great supporter of ours. When you enter their building, you walk right through the Saxby's. It's a 3,000 square foot Saxby's. It serves 1,000 guests a day. It's such a busy business. And again, it's exclusively student operated. It employs 85 students. So the student CEO, I mean, it, I, I almost chuckle thinking of this because like there's no way I would have been able to do this when I was, when I was that age. But the student CEO manages 85 of her peers. So she has wow. 85 people who report to her. She has about 22 yeah. team leads, like assistant managers. She's getting full academic credit for this. Um, but then she has full autonomy of the, the profit and loss statement. And so Penn State worked with us to provide us that real estate. We, not to get too far into the weeds, but essentially like we get, you know, a base support, HVAC and plumbing and those kinds of things. And then we designed with a lot of student input, a one of a kind tax fee. So it's meant to be youthful, vibrant, very sort of student centric. And then the students operate. So we pay to build it. And, um, and we essentially give some of the revenue back to the university. Um, you know, there, there are different ways that we're starting to grow this program. We're having conversations yep. with different dining services companies right now, because this has obviously come to their attention uh, as well. And, and we're very keen on taking John's advice and scaling this, you know, like it's yep. been be a beautiful thing for me now that we've been doing this for five years. I've used the coronavirus quote unquote downtime. I've connected <laughs> with every single current and former student CEO. We've done our own zoom calls and I've connected with them and to hear them talk about this experience, not just, how it became the impetus for them to get this job at Vanguard or this job at, at Amazon and how all of their interviews were predicated on the interviewer being like, I'm sorry, you managed your own business and managed your own peers and had full PL authority, but it's also the confidence they get in themselves. You know, we know what it's like to be 18 to 22 and you, you know, you second guess yourself. You try not to push the envelope because you don't want to make mistakes. We pull that out of them and, and they gain so much confidence in themselves that it's really starting to change their lives because they're not only getting great jobs or having uh, better preparation to be entrepreneurs than I was at their age, but they're, um, they're feeling great about themselves, you know, and that, that's starting to really spin the program forward. Yeah. And I look, the big point here is they're running a real legitimate business, right? This isn't like, you know, make believe time, right? This isn't, you know, pseudo business. This isn't pseudo business plan that never gets implemented. Like, this is a real business and it's a successful business. So I, you know, that, that I think is, uh, is a testament to the fact that, you know, well, you've proven this can be done. When I say this, right, students involved in running real businesses, playing real roles in those businesses, you as an entrepreneur making that a, a viable business, but at the same time, right, it fitting nicely into academics and the academic mission of the institution, 
And at a time like now, right, you, you've heard me say this and write about this often. Today's 18 to 24 year olds are the least working generation in U.S. history, right? So they just had, you know, fewer cracks at that work bat than any other generation that's come before them. The biggest critique of higher ed, maybe, maybe up against the price tag of it, is the lack of work readiness from students who are graduating from higher ed. But if you get down into the magic ingredients of what makes a graduate work ready, it's what you're talking about here, right? They had a job or an internship where they could apply what they were learning in the classroom, right? They worked on a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete. You know, these things are embedded in uh, exactly what you're doing in that model. And then, oh, by the way, one of the other big ones that, that, that translates to life and work success is whether they feel they had a mentor who encouraged their goals and dreams. And I think you guys have designed a very, very intense mentoring process in this as well. So, yep. you yep. know, kudos yep. to you. I mean, tell me, tell me how you're, I mean, you know, I know it's a struggle. Tell me how you're getting through this pandemic. Tell me what you see on the other side of the pandemic for you guys. Would love to have you tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, look, this is challenging for all of us. Um, but as leaders, I think we need to be able to sort of embrace that challenge. And I, and I take my position of being sort of an educator. I mean, I think that's the way I sort of look at myself as being able to be sort of an adjunct to the education system. I am technically an adjunct at places like Drexel and Entrepreneur and Residence of Cornell, but like, I feel like I'm an educator to all of the people that are in our business. And so, you know, we have gone through all the challenges that everybody else has had. You have to manage your costs. You have to manage your money. You have to constantly build pro formas of what the fall looks like and then rebuild them and then rebuild them. And they're constantly in rebuild. Yeah. And so, you know, we back in April, the, the very end of April, very beginning of May, we realized that this was going to be prolonged. And so we built a, a Saxby's 3.0 model um, that would normally only in most companies, you would only talk about that to like your board of trustees or your investors. But we built out this model of how Saxby's is going to survive to thrive the coronavirus. And we did a Zoom call and we had every single person in the company on that call, all of our student CEOs. They were getting ready to finish their tenure. All their cafes were closed, but we obviously honored their student CEO tenure. They all finished on June 30 and then the baton gets passed to July 1. But we had them all on that call because it is our responsibility as leaders to give them a once in a lifetime education opportunity. They got to sit and watch what would normally be a board meeting with a private equity group. And they got to sit through that. And then they could call me afterwards. They could call executives. Everyone has a mentor, both on the executive team, as well as a former student CEO. So to your point, Brandon, like mentoring is a massive part of what we do here. And they got to see firsthand of what a company has to go through to be able to deal with things that are outside of our control, you know, and where you have to yep. make decisions and, and more importantly, make decisions based on culture. Like you can see behind me, the mission statement to make life better, the six core values that guide the company, one of which is care personally, communicate openly. I care deeply that these young people are not taking classes for a semester, choosing to come and do something so hard, manage so many of their peers, have full PL autonomy. So I care so deeply about them. It's my responsibility to communicate openly to them, let them know what we're going through. And so as everybody probably on this call knows, you know, it's changing every day. I was communicating with the president of LaSalle University this morning, and she has amazing plans and contingency plans to those plans and contingency plans to that contingency plan. But so much of it is up to like, what is Mayor Kenny in the city of Philadelphia going to do? And then that's going to have to adjust all the things. So we're all in this world of having to be you know, flexible and mobile together. So the fall for us, I mean, we're, we've significantly decreased all expectations, but 
we have a natural lean towards when it might be easy to just close our cafes and just make a decision based on dollars and cents. We don't want to do that because that means that some student CEOs don't get this experience. And so if we can do this help, like in a, in a very safe manner, we will reopen our cafes and we're just going to be focused on staying safe and supporting our students. The money's not going to be there. Like it's not, it's not going to be a semester where it's going to be great and that's okay. Like this is so much more than just simply trying to make money. Yeah. And as you think about, you know, where, uh, where the future goes, you know, I think of all kinds of ideas. Uh, you know, obviously you started it as a, as a, as a coffee cafe, right. As the framework for how you might be able to, you know, teach and empower and, and encourage and grow people. Uh, but like, I think you and, you know, you and I were talking about this example before we came on live, you know, I think about the work study function at universities and was I was involved in studies where, you know, campuses that had a, a significant percentage of their students in work study roles, when we surveyed them about whether they felt like they were, you know, able to connect what they were doing in that work study role to anything they were doing academically, it was like, it was a zero. And, right. and, and so, you know, I look at these examples of there's, there's a lot of functions on college campuses that could benefit from students running them. You know, there's campuses that have uh, developed a full work campus model. So my good friend, Michael Sorrell at Paul Quinn College, right? It's the first urban work college in the United States. You know, the, every student there works and they work in a role on campus. And so, you know, if you start to expand this vision, Nick, there's a lot that, you know, your organization could do to transform, you know, what people think of as ordinary jobs on college campuses into you know, these really valuable work experiences, learning experiences where people are getting paid, they're doing meaningful work for the institution, uh, but it's actually part of the ecosystem of how we think about learning. And even you making the comment that your role as CEO, you view yourself as an educator, like that's an enlightened way of thinking as well. So I, I could just see a lot of different ways where beyond coffee, right, uh, there's, a, there's an awful lot of application to the the model you've created. So I'm curious if you've been thinking about, you know, some of those angles as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have. And that, again, another silver lining of this coronavirus sort of shutdown, as I like to call it, this is our, our time of productive hibernation. So we've been <laughs> able to realize that, like, we have something special here with our experiential learning platform. And there's a reason that we were very intentional that the word coffee, smoothie, latte, scone is not in our mission statement or our core values. This has never been purely about coffee. We think we have the best coffee and cold brew and students and faculty and visitors love our product, but this is so much more than product. You know, th this is really, it's social entrepreneurship, it's civic minded business. You know, it's believing in a mission, believing that we can be successful while lifting people up and not pushing people down. And it can transcend coffee. Coffee was just the best way to do it initially because it was the business that we were already in and it's a real amenity to college campuses. You know, I could talk forever about all the different spaces that we've taken over on different college campuses, a, a unused faculty dining hall at one place, a failed Sodexo operation at another place, the way that we've been able to reposition and then student design one of a kind, really vibrant spaces. Like Dean Whiteman at, at, uh, at Penn State is in that cafe multiple times a day. And I ask him and he's like, yeah, Nick, I like your coffee, but I, more importantly, I like seeing my students so happy. They're here socializing. I see professors having breakouts with their students down there, like, because this is like a living laboratory for them. Like Penn State Business School, Smeal is big in supply chain. So we have constant 
case study partnerships with professors in supply chain where they can actually teach and then yeah. look at it through the operation of a business. We're even working with them right now so they can see all the disruption in our supply chain or marketing professors and students every semester do different marketing campaigns for us. Like it's a real case study right there on the campus, but it can be so much more than just coffee shops. And I think that's where a lot of the ideation during this time is coming is to start to say, you know what, this is just really the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you know, look, if I if I had my way, uh, you know, made w waving the magic wand of a university president, uh, I don't I don't know that I would let a student graduate with a diploma from my institution, absent having an experience like this, right? Like that's how powerful I think it can be. So, what what are you guys thinking about in terms of measuring the long term impact among your alumni, right? Like they're obviously the university partners that you have, it's its their alumni, but like you have Saxby's alumni. And yep. I'm curious what, what happens, you know, in terms of how your company is thinking about tracking the outcome of those who leave Saxby's, right? Uh, or, you know, whatever other kind of outcome metrics you're thinking about from that perspective. Uh, that is such a great question, Brandon. Like I, I, I could talk about this forever. So back in the spring, um, the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, which is a, which is a, our division at the Wharton School here at the University of Pennsylvania did a pretty bit. We do a different project with them every single semester, and they did a project this semester sort of looking at that, that like we blink, and now a lot of our student CEOs are starting to graduate and go into the real world. And it's like, okay, what do we want to track? What are the outcomes that we want? I, I'm a dreamer. You know, like I'm a, you wouldn't go into being an entrepreneur in the coffee space to try to do these kinds of things unless you were a little off your rocker, but I'm a dreamer. And I, I believe that we have the potential to be sort of the leadership development vehicle that like GE's management program was in like the 70s and 80s. You know, they built a lot of great business leaders, but yeah. we're all reading the same things. We're probably all feeling the same things. A new form of capitalism has got to come out of this. Like the divide between haves and have nots, the racial issues we have in this country, we just can't tolerate it anymore. And so I see us potentially becoming the GE leadership development program of the future teaching people that mission matters, that core values matter, that double impact, financial and ESG impact matters, and that you can be successful in both of those things. And so we see a lot of opportunity to grow. And so Wharton helped us build essentially a database helping us track things. And I remember when the head of the Social Impact Initiative presented it to me, he goes, Nick, the first thing we're going to be focused on is, is attaining graduation. And I'm like, Jacob, that is such a low measurement. He goes, Nick, he's like, it's not. He's like, look at our universities. Like some of our university partners, Brandon, I mean, you know this, some of our right. uni university partners over the course of six years, less than 40% of their students graduate in six years. Yep. And usually those are young people who are borrowing a lot of money, wind up dropping out. And so now they're arguably worse off. You know, they don't have the diploma, they don't have the yep. experience, but now they have extra debt. So he's like, Nick, yep. the first goal needs to be graduating, graduating on time, graduating with moderate amounts of debt and financial awareness to go with it. And though now we're building a lot of programs, like we have a, I'm calling it a 401k for student loan debt program, but essentially a program that we're building that will start to accumulate money for our student leaders. And based on time and tenure, it will, it will accumulate money. When they graduate, it will pay down a significant lump sum against their principal interest. And they'll get a lot of education on managing money because I see it in my own company. 85% of us, including myself, borrowed money to graduate school. But when the cost of higher education has gone up nearly 400% in the last 20 years, with yeah. wages going up less than 15%, 
No wonder why our, our, you know, our um, student loan debt is $1.6 trillion. No wonder why people aren't making enough money to sort of change their lives. And so I see it as our responsibility, not to complain from the sidelines, but to help do something about it. So we're doing a lot right now in an alumni network that we've just kicked off and really working with these students to make sure that they're not just getting, you know, graduating with moderate amounts of debt, but doing things that they love to do. Like, and so that's, it's exciting. Like I, I, I couldn't imagine a better thing to be able to do. I feel like this was my life's mission and what I was working so hard for. So I'm excited to be a partner in and a proponent of higher education moving forward. Well, first of all, thank you for, for what you're doing. Thank you for inspiring higher ed to think in, uh, in new ways about how work readiness can be part of the core of what it's doing. And, um, and, and for your time today, I know you've, you've got your, uh, you know, your hands full like we all do, but uh, it's just fantastic to have you on the show. For those of you who are listening in, uh, next week, I'm going to be joined by Major General Bill Mullen, who leads all the learning and training for the United States Marine Corps. We're going to have an exciting conversation with him. Uh, and Nick, I, I certainly would love to have you back on the show uh, sometime next year and get some updates on, on what you guys have done post-corona. Uh, post so if you're up for that, I'll, I'll make sure we get you rescheduled here. I would love to, Brandon. Thank you so much. And thanks for everything you do to, uh, to help educate people like myself and inspire people like myself because uh, our young people are depending on it. And, I, and I'm a big believer that our, our future could be a beautiful place if we all lean in and work together. Well, look forward to staying in touch and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, thanks, for joining us today.